Uh, I'm Mark Usher. I teach the classics at uh, the University of Vermont, uh, though I am housed in the Department of Geography and Geosciences, which is a fairly recent development. I'm part of the environmental program there, um, so I see a lot of ENVS students. Um, I'm an affiliate member of the Gund Institute for Environment, and uh, I have a small farm that I run with my wife, who uh, has a flower business in addition to uh, us raising animals. Are all the flowers grown on site? They are, yes. Uh, and so she does like bespoke bouquets and she kind of, her niche is kind of dried flowers. Um, so oh. when, when flower season is over, that's when her 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 flower making and flower products uh, get into full swing. Brand new, brand new venture. So I don't want to bill it for more than it is, but we have high hopes. Is that so when you say dried, is it dried flower bouquets or is she actually building permanent kind of art things like things are being preserved or is it really dr dried flower bouquets? I mean, there's a certain impermanence to dried flowers anyway, yes. but, but both. I mean, so she makes like uh, kind of uh, wreaths out of dried flowers. Um, she do, does. Um, I don't know what they're actually called is a word for, but like valences with mm -hmm. dried flowers, um, bouquets as well. Um, she does like flower art. What as in addition, she got she makes like little cards with uh, flower petals like impressed oh. on them. I guess those aren't necessarily dried, but they're again using flowers that have been harvested or not live fresh flowers, but are. And she also does these like little um, candle holders. What are they called? Votive candle things where she she glues flowers onto them, and they're absolutely beautiful. Way better than painting. It's a yeah. you know. Yeah, anyway. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, do you have a proper website and an Instagram to showcase all these many products? Yeah, we have a, a, a website, but uh, the website, as I as I advertise it, is more uh, proof of life than it is interactive or or a way to kind of capture a market or certainly not, you know, we're not we're not influencers. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the website um, is there and there is a link in the works actually to her new flower business. I'm not even sure if it's active yet because I've got a student working on it. Okay. And, you know, I don't know, it's midterm exams. I don't know how far he got on that. But um, but uh, yeah, an Instagram, you know, not so much. Um, OK, we, we did one ironically several years ago, but then just gave up because it was too it was disingenuous for one thing. And then it was just like too much work to even do that. <laughs> it was too much work as a joke. Like we're doing this as a joke. And like, I don't, I just can't think of enough crap to throw up there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the kids got a kick out of it for a while. So that was enough. <laughs> okay. Let me, your, your wife doing the flower stuff yeah. and your homestead leads me to my first question. And also the fact that you've now come from classics, working on ancient literature and now ge geology, geography department how tell me your journey from what I assume was books and and rooms and sitting staring at text to farming and animal husbandry and the geology department? How does this happen? Right. So it, it definitely is still books and rooms. I mean, I, I, I haven't I haven't given up the ghost on that front at all. Um, so I love books. I love rooms. And uh, and the research and writing part of my life is is great, wonderful. And I'm happy for it. Um so for a long time, I kind of lived a double life as, you know, we, we, we built our own house. Um, actually, it goes even back further than that. I mean, we, we got married when we were young. We had our children at home. We ended up homeschooling them. So it kind of became like this addictive thing, like give a mouse a cookie. And, and it was sort of like a, a challenge that, you know, 
what it's kind of like a cynic challenge. The, the more you can do without, you realize, wow, I, I can do this myself or, you know, and we weren't like, I mean, we were ideological about it, but we weren't necessarily informed or specifically ideological. It was just like, if you can do, do, you know? Yeah. Um, and so anyway, so for a long time, I kind of lived that life, a double life where I was um, farming uh, or building a house, our house and homesteading on our, on the side and then playing the academic game on the other side. And then, you know, it was my wife's good idea, actually. Her name is Caroline. She, she said like, you should, you should write about like what the ancients have to say about sustainability and all these sort of things that, you know, are all in vogue now that, you know, we've been doing for 20 years without advertising it just because whatever, it just seems like the right thing to do or, sensible to do it used to be people this was self-published treatises about how to you know compost in the back of a hippie catalog which i grew up with all those hippie catalogs and t-shirts. so it was a cottage industry and now it's like big business yes i mean the whole earth catalog and uh the, i don't know if you're familiar with uh, scott and helen nearing who were kind of like the grandpappies of um of uh the back to the land movement they did it in the 30s uh but then became famous for it in the seventies, when everyone was thinking about going back to the land, they wrote a book called living the good life. They were a big influence, uh, in, inspiration to us. Uh, they have other foibles that we didn't agree with, but they were like, for instance, they, they thought raising animals was tantamount to chattel slavery. So we didn't fall into that camp, but, um, but they were just incredible, interesting people. Um, little intolerant, but um, anyway, long story short, they, they were influenced. Yeah, the Whole Earth Catalog, Five Acres and in Independence, even before that. You ever heard of that book? I have, yes. Uh, I think it's M.K. Keynes or M.G. Keynes. Like, and, and that went through so many uh, um, uh, editions. So we, you know, we have that on our shelves. So, yeah, you're right. It, it was this sort of like, you know, off the radar kinds of publications that were cult- cultish that we had been reading and got us interested in, in the first place. So anyway, yeah, living that. I have to life. ask, you're the one reading these books and these ancients and you're doing this other thing. Why did it never occur to you to bring these two huge parts of your life closer together? Yeah, I don't know. Cause uh, um, you know, it's kind of nice when you, when you live somewhere where you don't work and your friends are mechanics and butchers and carpenters and not academics, mm-hmm. not that I have, any grudge against academics. I love them. And, but it, it's nice to have another life. So, uh, apart from a career. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of just like that, but then, but then the, you know, I saw the the convenience of merging the two interests. So I started to write about, you know, what the ancients have to say about living, uh, with nature cooperatively and, uh, you know, and so, and I think a lot, so I wrote a book about that Plato's pigs, um, in 2020. And, and, uh, so since then, really, since the, doing the research for that book, I've kind of, you know, I don't know, bought the farm as it were, and become more of an environmental humanities kind of person, um, in my research and writing. So anyway, that happened, but then the only reason, I mean, not the only reason, but the, the primary reason why I'm in a department of geography and geosciences is because my university closed my classics department, our classics department down, didn't 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 eliminate it completely, but it it its identity as a department uh, was nixed, and it it, it, fo- it was folded into a world languages and literature school sure. school of which is very common in larger state universities. So, but I just felt like what I was doing at that time, and what I'm going to be doing for the next ten years, 
in writing and intellectual stuff is not going to just be about language teaching. It's going to be about, you know, other things too. So uh, I was headhunted by this other department, a couple of other departments actually. And, and, um, and so, yeah, chose to go with geography and geosciences. And I still teach all the same courses that I used to, but they, they like it. They like yeah. that tie-in. Okay. There's a huge, um, argument I see in the classics. I've always found the classics interesting. And as I got, well, I was an English major and I always liked the older literature versus the newer literature. I liked both of it. So I leaned that way, but never got a classics degree. And the classics used to be, I think it was a part for a few hundred years or maybe longer. It was a part of finishing school for the people who are university was a place for the people who are going to become the great Kings and Queens and, and captains and captainesses of industry Mm-hmm. You, if you want to fit in, you need to know these classic things because all these other people studied the classics too. All the successful people know them too. You're going to need all the references. Right. Uh, today, it's interesting. You're writing these books. I'm looking at, I bought a copy of How to Care About Animals, which is effectively one small piece from a very big publisher and an entire series that's kind of focused on exactly what you said, which is you know some practicality that the ancients have to the modern world. I can see that coming back into vogue, but I think at the same time as classics kind of melts away, there's this seems to be an interest in the ancients. So I guess my my big question is, if somebody comes to you and says, why should I study this stuff from the ancient Greek or in La- in ancient Greek, in Latin or in translation, what could they possibly have to tell me about how to live my life now thousands of years later? What is your argument you give maybe to undergrads about that? Uh, well, it, it sounds a little bit trite, but I mean, the more things change, the more they stay the same um, is truer than perhaps it should be. So, you know, I mean, when you when you look around and you see all all these things um, as a as an educated person that are that are touted as new, new ideas or new approaches and you realize, uh, you know, it, it, this is not new. This is this is not much different. I mean, there's not much progress made in ethics since Aristotle. Really, they're just variations on a theme. Um, and and uh, so, I think to be grounded in the classics is to just give you an awareness of this, you know, trajectory of where where we come from as a really as a species. You know, at least uh, as a in the. I mean, this would be true of all classics, whether they're Western, you know, Greco-Roman classics or. Confucian classics or, you know, Sanskrit classics. Um, so this this notion of the past is uh, informing the present, I think, is, well, actually, G.K. Chesterton uh, called it uh, the democracy of the dead. So tradition is basically giving a vote to people who just don't happen to be walking around anymore, giving a vote by meaning like giving them a voice. So it doesn't mean you just like take it hook, line and sinker. I mean, they were wrong about a lot of things, the ancients, but you know, uh, it's better to know what they were saying than not to know and think that you have like a, a new idea where it, it's not necessarily new. And they may have anticipated all the problems back then. I mean, you read Thucydides, you know, he's still an apt political scientist, uh, uh, theorist that uh, is, re- you know, all too relevant today. So, um, yeah, the, the Princeton series is really good for that because they're bringing people who you know, they're historically, the, the, the scholars who are translating them are very historically minded. They're not pandering. They're not, you know, dumbing it down. They're making accessible, you know, all the complexities of the past, the, the, the topics that they write about, and they're representing, repackaging for a modern audience. I think it's really useful. Um, so. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, so I'll just play devil's advocate. Um, yeah. 
there is a story we are given in the modern world. So you have these two books, How to Care About Animals and uh, How to Be a Farmer. And they're both drawing from the ancients about two things that we care about animals almost primarily as a growing urbanite population globally. There are more human beings living in urban and suburban environments now than in rural. So they're clearly, there's more city dwellers and the only animal city dwellers are exposed to are, you know, rats, raccoons, possums, scrub birds, the occasional migrating, whatever. And then cats and dogs and whatever you keep in your environment. Uh, Why to care about animals, how to care about animals has the urban modern world sort of drifted from these ancients and this isn't going to come back. The thing you're doing where you're like, I'm homesteading, I'm we're growing flowers, we're raising animals, we're living with them. This is not going to be the experience for the vast majority of human beings. It feels like in this, in the modern world. Right. Well, I'm okay, fair enough. I mean, uh, there is no going back and there's no even okay. to, re- to return to. And I'm not, I'm not under any illusion that there is, we consider ourselves like really fortunate to be able to live on a hundred acres and have this lifestyle that there is still space in the world uh, that this can happen. Um, so we're, we're, we're very fortunate, but you know, the, the motto of the city of Chicago, uh, which is your time zone, I think right now yeah. um, is orbs in Horto, you know, a city in a garden orbs in Horto. And the reason is because, you know, it's got a lot of green space and there are a lot of, you know, within the city limits, there's a lot of you know, Washington park, you know, uh, downtown. Um, and the, uh, th- that notion is, I think also, you know, evocative of mental landscapes that, you know, you don't have to live out on the farm to have an appreciation for nature. Uh, the, the tree that's growing in your backyard is just as precious and just as important as, you know, the forest out in the, in, in the forest primeval or the, the tree in the forest primeval. So that's a, that's a false dichotomy that, that, you know, there's pristine, you know, untouched or somehow rural, you know, uh, landscape. And then there's the urban. I mean, there is that for sure. But um, we can, you know, make rural the urban uh, to a, a greater degree. We can, uh, and, and it's very much how you think about the world. Whether you're a, a conservationist or, you know, farming in a way, many ways is a state of mind. Um, the ethos of farming you can you can have that in the city. So you, I, I, I like that. I feel the blurring because I think there is a sense, I think there's always a sense of divisiveness. And we see in the ancients, there was serious division between the people in the rural world and the people living in the city. This was a serious problem thousands of years ago, and it remains this problem where people feel like one group doesn't understand the other group. Right. And I think in the, your introductions to these works inside how to care about an, how to care about animals, and then you told me to read the afterword to Plato's Pigs, which I did. Oh, good. It's kind of this maybe an idea that this eco- this idea of ecology just like you said nature is around us it's us becoming blind to it and us not thinking about how we're fitting into it at any moment the mindset that is the problem and not necessarily the fact that you're not in the forest you don't need to return to the forest primeval to have a full appreciation for how you connect to nature's web absolutely i couldn't okay. agree more uh, you know uh, william cronin wrote a, a great piece um you know the trouble with wilderness uh, back in the 90s mid 90s um, where, and, and I think the subtitle is getting back to the wrong nature. And, and he basically argues that, you know, human beings are a part of nature. We, 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 we use it. We are integral to it. I mean, there's no 
separate. There isn't a separation, a meaningful one. You can't. So the, the question becomes a question of proper integration, of wise integration, wise use, prudent use um, of nature. And again, that can be practiced anywhere. Um, you know, whether you're actually farming and you're a, a pasture manager or whether you're, you know, living in the city and choosing where to get your food or you have an allotment and you're growing as much food as you can or how much money, you know, a school board puts into, you know, that kind of that kind of programming for its students in the inner city, which is totally possible instead of building another, you know, whatever it is, parking lot, um, you know, so th these things are all all possible. It's definitely a state of mind. Um, okay. And I'll, let me just continue to play devil's advocate and be uh, modern cynical, not ancient cynical about yeah. the fact that individual choices about how we care for animals and the relationship we have for animals and how we care for the water and the air and the trees around us um, is often presented as individual. So you, you have the power to do something. You individually can recycle. You individually can buy locally grown produce. But the great big warping effects of kind of mankind's ability to do whatever we want on earth mm -hmm. feels like it's far more powerful than any individual choice. And so I wonder if you kind of on your acreage and kind of having a space where you can kind of craft a space for yourself, but still see the world warped in ways by humanity. And this is where I think it'll get to the book. Humanity has this endless way of just creating new wants and needs, new wants and needs. And there are a couple of things I want to talk about in How to Care About Animals that specifically address humanity's need to do this. Right. Uh, we just imagine things we want, and then we go out in the world, and we take whatever we want, and we don't really see how those choices carry consequences. And even if we see it, I individually see it, if I don't have that much power, I don't own a company, I don't run a country, I don't have, I can't choose which way, the, which direction the military goes. How do you ethics today feel even more fraught and complicated than they ever did thousands of years ago about how much power do I actually have in this great global economy and world? Right. No, that's a really good question. And, and it does boil down to power. I mean, in my own, I mean, obviously I've kind of, I've, I've opted for a, a sort of a quietistic uh, approach yeah. to it. So, you know, those who, those who, those who can do, those who can't teach, I guess I do both, but, you know, again, I think we're lucky that we're able to, to do what we do, but there are, as you say, there are plenty of people who don't have the means or the power or the, and, and believe me, our farm is a hard scrabble farm. There's no trust fund here. <laughs> Everything was pay as you go. So I don't want you to get the wrong impression. It's not yeah, like, no, I, yeah, yeah. Not like we didn't work hard to, to have it. And what we have is pretty modest, you know, a thousand foot square house is not very big. But it's a lot bigger than the apartments most people live in. So everything that you say is is true and the, and the powerlessness. But, you know, on the other hand, this idea of, you know, I don't know. I, I've been reading, uh, you know, Peter Kropotkin lately. Um, I'm teaching a course on utopias next semester for the first time. So Ooh. I'm preparing for it. Um, and so I'm you know, reading the con I've read the conquest of bread and, you know, the anarchist argument about ownership is really quite profound. It's not unlike the argument that I just mentioned about like the tradition, tradition or uh, traditions, plural, being like the democracy of the dead. The, the anarchist says like, you know, private property is a, is a fiction because anything that you own, you happen to possess at any one time is has been molded by, you know, 
thousands of hands over centuries, whether it's a piece of land or it's an actual house that you bought, you know, even if you built the house, you know, somebody made the stuff that or, or processed the stuff that goes into the house that you built. So this idea of uh, being connected to a, a long line of, of uh, people who have gone before you is very real. I mean, it, it's a, it's real, but it's also a realization you have to have to think about that. Now, you know, again, it doesn't solve the the immediate problem when you are powerless in a, in a society that's run by people who are exercising power over you. Sure. But it, 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 it's something that is the fact. I mean, it is, it is the case. Um, and um, it, it is empowering to think that way about, about it, about the world. And um, that we're kind of temporary tenants of what we have and uh you know this idea of uh, a commons and that we're we're stewards or what all this you know it's a very old idea but it's one that can maybe resuscitate our attitudes towards you know everything including power um you know material possessions and and, and power so that mindset it's interesting we would think so something affected if we're setting up a political spectrum the anarchists are oftentimes on the far left and yet that idea you're sharing very is of course something that is pulled from very conservative small C that is pulled from the right where they're looking to the old. So both the far left and saying, we want to focus on the ancient indigenous culture here, or the anarchists saying everything you own is not yours because it's passed through all these hands that weren't you on the other side. They're like, no, we've got to preserve these legacies and preserve uh, how this mindset sounds like it can properly help people anywhere on the spectrum in any situation to appreciate where things that you, things you didn't bring into being in this world, or even if you did bring them into being other people helped bring them into being through the centuries and millennia. Yeah. I mean, I find that uh, that's, uh, I, I think about that more and more about, about everything from you know, what I'm, what I'm writing and what I'm doing. Um, and, it, and it gives you, it gives you a sense of feeling connected. It's um, you know, this, and again, feeling connected is empowering. Um, because it's uh, it's not just a, a fiction. It's not just a feel good thing. It's just like a it's factual. It's actual. <laughs> um, and if you realize that and act upon it, and you know, if a lot of people realize that and act upon it, it will change the way we relate to one another. And, and you know, ultimately politically, but even just in a community setting uh, uh, as well. So. Okay, that's perfect, because now I want to bring a quote that I pulled right out of the afterword to Plato's Pigs, where you oh. write, quote, everything is interconnected, is no quaint statement or source of spiritual solace, which it sounds like the idea that we're all connected to these generations. It is rather, practically speaking, a terrifying prospect. And in that case, to be fair, you are talking about a sort of ecological disaster. So if we're if we're interconnected to everything and we're wrecking the environment, uh-oh, this is horrifying to realize that every choice I make is damp could be damaging to the future. But this interconnectedness, I think it gives a lot of solace. But then the other side is, I guess, that panic, the terrifying prospect that the things I do are connected to these things and I could be causing damage. Yeah, well, it's, it's a great responsibility. So, you know, and and not enough people think about the responsibilities and obligations we have to uh, the environment and to one another. I mean, we 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 definitely do not consider that enough. So you know, is it a good idea to uh, cut those trees down that are near that wetland there, where they're they're serving a good purpose now? Uh, uh, you know, and if I do that for any reason, uh, what do I owe 
back to for, for doing that i you know what what was that what was their purpose in the first place so do i plant other trees and other species that will be good to mitigate erosion or whatever mitigate the wetland that's there but so um it's that second thought and uh and that notion of giving back too um when you do need to take um because you know just by being in the world that's part of the the notion of the interconnectedness you cannot help but do harm i mean you can strive all you want to do no harm, but you're not going to be able to live a life free of, you know, trampling, you know, uh, pristine nature or bugs under your feet or, right. or, you know, taking life to, 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 to live. So in the face of that, uh, because you can't avoid it, what's the proper ethical response? Well, you know, um, I think if you, I can't remember if I talk about it in the afterward to that book or yeah. I think it's earlier in that book, but Schweitzer, Albert Schweitzer, uh, unlikely suspect argued that, you know, the proper ethical response is to give back as a sort of a, an obligation, um, give back in, in every form that you can give back. Uh, and that keeps it keeps it going. It's just like, you know, giving back to the soil when you take something from it. You can't do that forever. That's like just science. You just can't do it. Um, so you have to bring the nutrients back that you've taken away. So that seems like a good ethical principle in for living generally to me. And, um, and uh, yeah, so, but, but it's also part of that being interconnected. I mean, you really don't have a choice. It's, it's only under the, the, with the delusion that you think you, you can be separate or you can be, you can just like take and not give back. That's a mistake. Uh, so you'll have to tell me, cause I haven't read how to be a farmer yet, but I have read, uh, except for the last bit on <clears throat> where your last writer and how to care about animals is really going to make an argument for vegetarianism, which I agree with the argument for vegetarianism already. So I'm like, if I have to skip one thing, I'll skip the last essay till later before this interview. Oh, so good. I read the rest of it. Um, thinking about animals, the responsibility, that example you gave of the wetlands, if I own the wetland and I own the lawn and the trees next to it, I think in many mindsets, we are we are led to understand, well, my responsibilities are to the law and the community and the other people. And if other people don't care in this area what I do, right. then there's no repercussion to human beings. It doesn't matter. And even with all the ecological and animal-minded and mother nature-minded stuff, I think a lot of times our inclination by nature as our species is to think of ourselves first. And so if we're harried or stressed or we're just not thinking – is it going to hurt anybody? No. Well, then I'm done. I mean, so I don't care. I don't owe anything to the wetland. If I want the trees out, I want the trees out. It's my property. It doesn't hurt anybody. Nobody cares. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's the American way. I mean, that's, <laughs> that, that, that is it. I mean, that's the right liberty, you know, right to liberty, freedom, happiness, all of that sort of stuff. Right. And, um, and you know, I, where it's very short sighted. I mean, um, I mean, even that experiment is pretty young, you know, 200 years plus. Yeah. Uh, this whole experiment won't last forever. And um, so, you know, thinking to the seventh generation, you know, you've probably heard that, uh, that sort of the indigenous mantra of, of, you know, you should, you should take action now with a view to the seventh generation from now. Okay. Um, you know, it's not ill-founded. I mean, again, these things can be trite and they can sound new agey, but it's, it's important. It's important now more than ever, because now we see the consequence, we're actually living with the consequences of, you know, climate change, which has been, you know, caused by the honeymoon of the last, you know, 50 years of 
explosion of use of fossil fuels and with, with no consequences, all abiding by the law, some of it not, but much of it totally legal and fine. And, you know, so we need to change, you know, you really have to change the structures um, of society to operate within. So some, some of this social cooperation and cooperation with nature going to need to be coerced, you know, through the long arm of the law or the changing of laws. But, um, you know, it's got to start also with attitudes and mentalities. Um, and uh, so, you know, yeah, who knows? I'm not, I'm not necessarily hopeful, but uh, what you <laughs> describe, what you describe is the paradigm. It's my, you know, in Vermont, we say there's a, there's a sort of a saying you see on bumper stickers. Um, uh, I'm a Vermonter. I do what I want to. And <laughs> the idea is that, you know, that in many people's minds is liberty. Right. But it's, uh, yeah. That's a, that's a real, I feel like the, the Texans also have that same thing. It's like a sense, yeah, that freedom is our highest thing. But like, again, um, in, in I think many religions teach this, all the freedom you get is always in service or mixed in yin-yang with responsibility. So if, again, from the very heart of the, the Bible, you get freedom, but then there's responsibility that comes with it. These things come hand in hand. You don't get freedom. You don't get to do what you want to without also thinking about all the things you can't do when you want to, like there's just. Exactly. No, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, are there things that um, somebody could tell me, you know, obviously there, there's a, you know, the, the, what, what, what people will come back and argue is that you don't want, you know, big brother telling you what to do, what you can sure. and can't do on your land. Uh, and that's true to a degree. Um, but, but it's not absolutely true. And it has to be, you know, uh, basically these sorts of laws and strictures and regulations need to be informed by, you know, s science um, and, uh, you know, and with public welfare in mind, um, and uh, which includes, of course, uh, the welfare of the environment, nature. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, I love, I love Sto. I don't subscribe to everything from stoicism, but I love the ideas of stoicism in the same way as Buddhism. And this is your own fault. So you put a letter from Seneca into yeah. how to care about animals. Oh, good. In it, he talks about he's, it's just a few pages and uh, he talks about unnecessary luxuries and he uses animals as an example. Animals don't need, we cause problems for ourselves because we want all these things and we think we need them, but look at the animals. They just, they get what they need. And then, a few selections later, you have Plutarch, who has the comedic back and forth about a man turned into a pig. Right. And the guy's like, hey, I talked to Cersei, and I'm going to get all you guys turned back into people. And the pig's like, hold on. I don't, did you ask us? Because I don't think we want to become. Right. And in his, in his like happy comedic philosophical argument, he presents, you've got these desires, and the desires are neither natural nor necessary. And that's what he says the problem becomes. Us, us animals our desires are natural and necessary and you humans, not just are they unnecessary, but then you start coming up with these desires that are just completely unnatural. I don't even know where you get it. Both of these arguing Seneca and the pig from Plutarch arguing that a major problem is that you want things, whether you've been led to believe you want them by other people, consumer culture, or your family modeling for you and saying, this is what a proper family does. This is what a human being needs. We have this infinite capacity to dream up new things to want. If you look at the trees and they're they're annoying to you, is the answer a stoic answer of 
I mean, are the trees really annoying? How annoying? Um, are they really, how much are they bothering you? Right. You sort of wisely, you might wisely weigh it out. Do I really want that change? Do I want to go cut down the trees? I don't know. Where do you, you put those in there. Clearly in thinking about animals, we get a vision of what is absolutely necessary to survive. And then we look at our lives and think, I have all these luxuries that make things comfortable. So what, what are your thoughts on how that plays out in the, in the animal examples of how to care about animals? Mm. So in that Seneca passage, um, what, what I see in that it's letter 60, I think, and, and um, you know, when I first encountered that letter, I wasn't thinking along these lines. But since then, I've discovered the work of um, Jakob von Uxkuhl, who oh. was a, a German, Baltic German uh, biologist. And he was- You name uh, drop him in the afterword on Plato's pigs. I do. Okay. Well, he talks about, um, he, you know, he developed this, con- this concept called Umwelt, uh, which in German just simply means uh, environment. But he meant it in a specific way that uh, every organism on the planet lives in its own like bubble, its own universe, where space and time are relative to that organism. So uh, he gives many examples, and it's all, you know, properly, it's empirical science. It's not just hypothetical uh, and not just philosophical. It's biological. He he basically invented the field of biosemiotics. But um, he uses the tick as an example. So the tick, you know, has no eyes and ears, uh, and it can go 18 years without feeding, um, and it's only kind of uh, prompted to act or to, you know, set in motion by the presence by its its perceiving the presence nearby of butyric acid, which is something that mammals excrete from their glands. So the tick senses that. And I don't even want to say smells it. I'm not sure that it has like a sense of smell, but it's a chemical stimulus that causes it to drop from its perch, land on the animal. At that point, another stimulus takes place. To, uh, it, uh, sets a foot and it, and it, it starts to, it's a tactile um, stimulus that the tick runs around on the, on the hair of an animal until it finds a bald spot. Now, uh, w- w- then it stops running around when it finds a spot where it can actually like l- latch in. And then it's not the tactile experience anymore. It's a heat signal that actually impels it to bore. Now, I know you're a veterinarian. I don't know if you know about ticks, no, Not a veterinarian, but work with veterinarians. Yeah. You do work with veterinarians. So, and bites bites into the, the, the mammal and then feeds, lays its egg and dies. And that's the, that's the world of the tick. Now, every animal tells a similar story. So of all the hundreds of stimuli that are radiating from a mammal's body, your body, my body, when we're out for a walk, only those three are activate a tick to, to do anything to it. So it's umwelt is, is that bubble. And the, you know, the truth is that all animals have that, the, uh, that kind of limited bubble and, uh, with their own stimuli and their own reaction to it. So that letter from Seneca, I think is interesting. He's saying like animals know what they need and they, they operate within those parameters naturally. You know, they don't live, they don't try to live outside of their bubbles. Well, a human being, has a problem. We have, uh, not only do we just have like a physical bubble and physical stimuli, but we have this problem called consciousness or reason or whatever you want to call it. They, they called it that, you know, gives us a, a horizon of, of either expectation or uh, projection into the future of possibilities, needs and wants and desires that fall outside of a natural or physical umwelt. Uh, and, and so, but because reason is part of human beings, umwelt, according to the Stoics, 
we need to exercise it properly uh, within to be able to live within our means. And the, 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 I mean, according to the Stoics, you probably are familiar. They would say that we we act irrationally. We act against our interests uh, because we we don't exercise our reason properly in dealing with emotions and needs and wants and desires. Um, so I find that's a really useful concept. And animals can. I mean, I think Seneca in that letter is saying animals can teach us about living within the compass of our means because they do it naturally. It's harder for us, but we do it poorly compared to animals. <laughs> animals do it by instinct. You know, they do it, you know, unless there's something wrong with the animal, it doesn't do it. But otherwise, it, it'll do it. Guaranteed, it's going to act a certain way. Um, we're not talking about machines either. We're talking just about, you know, um, responding to, uh, you know, an environment um, correctly and, and appropriately and uh, effectively for survival, for flourishing. There is this never-ending... Uh there's this never ending conversation throughout all of humanity where uh, once we start writing things down, there's this huge question of whether this reason is a good thing or a bad thing. And probably the correct answer is it's both a good and a bad thing, or right. it's neither. It's like, is it good or bad that a tick can detect that acid? Well, in some cases for some animals, it's probably bad. We wish it didn't detect that acid. The ticks weren't around. We wish we didn't have them. We struggle with our reason. We, we want to tame it. We say it's the most wonderful thing. It makes us better than all the animals. And the other respect, then you have these examples you give in How to Care About Animals, where you have these people either speaking for animals or looking at animals or saying uh, this reason's not always cooked up to be. It causes us all this problem. So overall, in How to Care About Animals, it, if you look at how it's thought of, if re how reason is thought of, do you think overall you feel like the ancients are extolling reason? It's the best thing about us. Or is it a bit of a curse, the way it's presented in the very beginning of Genesis, or the way Plutarch and Seneca talk about this reason really causes us difficulties? Yeah, well, you know, I think it, I think it's a question of uh, exercising it correctly, okay. I and mean, that's why that's that's why they're all concerned about the, the proper use of reason and using reason, you know, to uh, control the appetitive part of our nature. Um, so, you know, Plato's tripartite soul or, you know, the Logos principle from everywhere from Heraclitus to the Stoics. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's in, indispensable, but it just needs to be exercised properly to know what it is. And that's where the ancients would say philosophy comes in and, you know, defining terms and, you know, what is X and, um, and so it, it's not a it's not a given. It's not natural, maybe even unnatural to kind of recover it um, because it is a kind of a struggle with our wants, needs, desires, emotions to uh, to know what's right. But then but then be willing to act on what's right once we think we know what it is. OK, this is probably unfair. Uh, I only have a few more minutes with you and I'm going to dump what I think is a big it's not a big philosophical question, but um. One of the neat things about this series, and there are now dozens of books in the series, is they present the way the, uh, what are those green volumes that classicists always have where half of it's in the Latin and half? The Loeb. The, the Loeb. Thank you. The Loeb editions. And there's so published, many of them. Yeah. Published by Princeton's nemesis, Harvard. Oh, <laughs> okay. So the what is this? Princeton's like, oh, we can do that too. It presents uh, Greek on one side and English on the other and Latin on one side and English on the other. So knowing Hebrew, coming to Judaism uh, and having that unlocked, I, it's now necessary. If you're Taurus, it's really irritating just to have the English translation. But for many of us, there are very, I mean, and nobody knows the Latin and certainly almost nobody knows the Greek. 
when you go in and think about I'm presenting this thing, does it feel what to you is the nice part for a book as opposed to Loeb, which is presented as this is a scholarly one that the classicists will use to work right. on. Right. These books are presented as just right. their popular press stuff. Why have the foreign language in there? Right. It's a, it, my, my view, I'm not yeah. speaking for the publisher per se, but it, it's a visual parody that is very effective. And it's sort of like what, what Princeton's publishing in this series is like the Benetton of Loeb's. So you'll notice that the colors, the colors are all, the covers are all different colors. Yeah. Uh-huh. They're, not just, they're not just red for Latin and green for Greek. Um, you know, the, the translations are, uh, they aim to be lively and in modern idiom. So they meant, you know, meant to be accessible translations in the true sense, not just translation ease, but representing material fairly based on what the Greek and Latin actually says. Right. Um, and it also has that um, kind of self-help aspect to it that you surely have noticed. Everything is how to, how to, how to, yeah. and how many books are how to books. Um, so it's the idea that it has some sort of practical, you know, instrumental value to, uh, to the human being who's reading it rather than, and they look great on the shelves. Uh, yeah. as my wife, my wife says we have, a, we have, I've done four of them now. So they're up there. Uh, I will have done four of them. They're up there and they are all different colors and they're nicely produced, but, okay. yeah, but yeah. I mean, you know, there are people who, you know, are, you know, interested in the Greek and the Latin and, or they want to, they're interested in it because they had it in high school or something. They had Latin in high school. So it's a chance for them to, you know, check a word or see a phrase and be reminded of something. And, uh, that has value. And one of your first footnotes that I looked up, again, presents a problem that occurs in Hebrew all the time, which is you translate a Hebrew word, you have to pick an English word to mean it. But the problem is that word means four or five different things. And so you, there is no possible way to translate it properly in the new language. How do you, you dealt with that some way in footnotes. If you thought it was so important, you're like, you should know this word they use also can mean this and also has a flavor of this, but that yeah. just can't come across in the translation. So how do you translate? Yeah, I think you were you know, the one. The passage you might be referring to is that uh, short bit about um, the octopus in the. That is absolutely yes. And of course, because that's a poem. That's that's poetry. You know, uh, it's province. It's part and parcel of poetry that you know words. You, you stretch the meaning of words, or you play with the meaning of words, and uh, words have connotations, and, and poets are aware of them, and they choose them for that reason often. So. Um, uh, that, that needed a footnote there. But on the other, uh, in general, um, you know, when you're translating, you're, uh, I, this is my view, I guess, um, you, you're translating ideas. You're not translating words. You're not even translating phrases and sentences. You know, and if, if I think there's any, like, uh, uh, I don't know, demerit in, in modern translations of ancient works is, 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 is it's when they try to be literal, Okay. Like there's, there's really no such thing as a literal translation. I mean, if, and if there is, you wouldn't want to read it. I wouldn't recommend reading it. You want somebody who is familiar enough with the original language to be able to literally translate, carry over the meaning of what the author is saying to uh, in an idiom that makes sense now rather than representing each and every word that's there. I mean, that does have its purpose, but if, if, if you want to get to that level of study, you should learn the original language, uh, my view. I mean, and, and you will want to if, if, if your concern is that kind of exactitude. So, um, yeah, translation is, a, is, a, is just, yeah, never makes everybody happy. Um, you know, somebody's going to quibble about this, that, or the other, but 
on the whole, um, if I think if you approach it with the idea that you're 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 translating ideas primarily, words secondarily, you're on firmer footing and you're going to be more effective. Okay, I don't well, having that's just me. Having read the translation for How to Care About Animals, I was they're wide ranging. And so, again, um, I know a lot of people who like animals. And so I think it's a great book, an example of you try to include examples of naturalists and philosophers who are observing animals and are really excited about them. So I think people who love animals can attend to that. And you include the fables and allegory stuff where animals get used as examples of us. And if right. you use an animal, it just hits you in a different way. And that's what the author's doing. They're trying to hit you from a different direction. Instead of saying the great emperor, whatever did this to the other emperor. It's like, well, the dog did this to the cat and it just hits differently. It gets the message across differently. So it, I thought it did a nice job of covering the entire <clears throat> menu of ways that the ancients kind of talk about animals. Uh, so well, th- well, thanks for noticing that because that was the goal is variety is the spice of life, you know, and keep things interesting. So I did want to have variety there. And so when you read the porphyry at the end, boy, yes. translation becomes, when you, you definitely, it's a question of translating ideas. That was a very hard passage to translate because it's very thick. The Greek is very crabbed. It's not very elegant. There's a lot of borrowed, almost like wholesale stolen phrases from Aristotle and from Plutarch oh. in there. And it's hard to know where the stolen stuff and the original, you know, the Porphyry's own voice begins. Um, so it, it was a hard, hard to translate. And, but the ideas are very, very compelling, even if the packaging in the Greek is not okay. my view. Uh, Pliny's the same way. Pliny can be a real, you know, terrible thing to text to read. Uh, in, you did in call the- that out. And I thought that was helpful. And I felt you could feel it. I, uh, somebody, I forget, I read Xenophon and Herodotus and Thucydides and I forget one of, and then something came at, there was some Roman historian and he's like, don't expect him to be as good. And I'm like, he was not as good. You could just tell from the yeah. translation, the sentences weren't as good. The word choice was that things were repetitious or didn't make sense. And there was right. no way to, the translator can't fix that. Like that's just, no, it's in the original. Uh, right. You, you kind of tweak it as, as best you can, but you can't misrepresent it and make it something that it's not. That would be not not true <laughs> but um yeah but you can, uh, la- you can go ahead last question what do you hope people take away if people read how to be a farmer how to care about animals if they have an encounter with ancients on things that are around them all the time or things they think about all the time what do you most hope people pull away from that no <laughs> um i mean d- don't discount something just because it's old you know i mean thoreau has this great uh a little comment in uh, in Walden where he says, well, people don't want to study the classics because they're old and outdated. But then he says, well, you might as well not study nature because <laughs> he's old, right? You know, nature has been around a long time. And when, when you think about, you know, the, I think the past is, is ever so much with us. It's part of our genetic memory, you know, biologically speaking. And, it, and you know, culturally speaking, notionally speaking, it's it's also similar. It's like part of our cultural DNA to uh, to know the past. And I'm talking not just the Greco-Roman past. I'm talking about the pasts uh, of of humanity: Indigenous, Confucian, Buddhist, Sanskrit. You know, Islam. Uh, all these things inform our 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 current ways of thinking, and um, they're not necessarily all compatible, but they're all important and and deserve our attention. Um, so yeah. 
Okay, well, I do like the fact then that you open with that very short bit from Aristotle where he's sort of justifying the study of, you think animals are dumb, we can do whatever we want, there's nothing interesting about studying them. Well, let me tell you. He presents the short that, thing, yeah, yeah. That's a great example. That's, a, that's an instance of exactly what I'm, I'm talking about. Yeah, it teaches you about being a human to study animals, you know, in, in many ways, he suggests. I love that passage. That's one of my favorites.